much uh, as we did singing it. It's a uh, very appropriate song in light of the uh, fact that uh, we are talking about what it means to be a disciple. And uh, as we think about that today, I want to tell you a true story. I want to tell you the story of a 15-year-old young man in southern Ethiopia named Tulu. Um, uh, much like the young man that you see here uh, in the picture, Tulu um, had an unknown disease that caused him to be physically weak and caused him to be learning disabled. In fact, he was unable to go to school. But Tulu received Christ, and he also experienced divine healing. In fact, he recovered so much that he was able to go back to secondary school. Well, um, Tulu, um, when he was not in school, devoted himself to things like reading the Bible and praying and sharing with others the difference that Christ has had made in his life. In fact, he gained a reputation for the warmth and the affection that he demonstrated when he would witness for Christ in his uh, community. Well, um, there were some other people who weren't uh, happy about Tulu's newfound faith. They were some Muslim extremists, and they decided to attack Tulu, and they did so with a spear. They pierced his scalp, his head, his skull with a spear. Miraculously, Tulu recovered. And uh, his mother tells um, that in the area where they lived, there was only four Christians at the time. But through Tulu's persecution and the aftermath of that, over 50 people came to faith in Christ, including Tulu's father and mother, who before that time were not believers. Well, on February the 2nd, 2005, Tulu was involved in a second incident. He was attacked again a second time, this time at school. This time by a machete-wielding Muslim extremist named Mohammed. Mohammed um, cut Tulu's throat as he cried out the jihadic war cry, Allahu Akbar! Tulu's family tried to rush him to a clinic nearby, but he died en route. He died as a martyr for Christ. But Tulu's story and his legacy was not over. You see, Mohammed, his murderer, was in prison. And while he was there, he was visited by two local Christians. At first, Tulu didn't want anything to do with them. But they just continued to visit him and continued to speak words of encouragement and consolation, words of forgiveness to him. And through their persistence, they befriended to, to uh, sorry, they befriended Mohammed over time. And eventually, Mohammed came to experience the love of God. He invited Christ into his life to be his Lord and his Savior. Um, in fact, he repented of his sin, the sin of, uh, of murder specifically, and um, he told the authorities who had alleged that the killing was due to a family dispute. He said, no, that's not the truth. He said it was due to, re- to religious fanaticism fanned by Muslim, Muslim extremists. He repented of his sin, 
And he began a process of discipleship with the two Christians that had befriended him and who had showed him Christ's love. And on March the 5th, 2007, Mohammed was baptized in the name of Tulu's God, the same God that Mohammed had persecuted. In fact, he was baptized along with three other prisoners, and they did so publicly to everyone who was present, including the prison guards who escorted them to the baptism. And while they were there, they declared and professed the love and the saving power of Jesus Christ. Tulu and the two Christians who befriended Mohammed in prison were a city on a hill through whom the light of Jesus shattered and illuminated the spiritual darkness of over 50 people, including Tulu's murderer, Mohammed. You, too, are a city on a hill. How brightly are you, shi- are you shining? I as well am a city on a hill. How brightly, Kent, are you shining? We as a people, Hawkwood Baptist Church, are a city on a hill. How brightly are we shining? Well, we find the term city on a hill in the sermon of Jesus that we are currently studying. We started last week looking at the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5 and 7. Last week, we learned that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus provides practical instruction for his disciples. He tells his followers how to live life on this earth in light of the radical truth that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. In his first words of the sermon, Jesus recites what have come to be known as the Beatitudes. There are eight statements about qualities of kingdom living that all begin with the word blessed or blessed. We learned last week that the Beatitudes are not entrance requirements for the kingdom of heaven. Neither are they a set of ethical demands for personal behavior. Rather, the Beatitudes are a description of the kind of qualities produced in disciples of Jesus who are embracing kingdom rule in their lives. In other words, they are qualities that are produced in you and in me as we choose to wholeheartedly obey and follow Jesus as our Lord. Well, today we're going to ponder Jesus' next words in the sermon, where we encounter the phrase, city on a hill. And I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to stand together and to read together aloud with me this next passage from the sermon. Let's read together Jesus' words. You ready? Here we go. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father in heaven. Would you please be seated? In this passage, Jesus uses two metaphors to describe to his disciples how they will impact the world with the kingdom life they possess. The first metaphor Jesus uses is salt. He says to his disciples, and he says to us, his disciples today, you are the salt of the earth. Well, I don't know about you. Remember, I like to ask questions. Why did Jesus compare his followers to salt? Well, there's several possibilities. In the ancient world, salt had a variety of uses. One, it was used as a preservative. In fact, it uh, continued to be used as a preservative until the modern advent of refrigeration. It was rubbed into meat or fish to slow decay. Some scholars believe that Jesus was indicating that as his followers, we slow the moral decay of the broken world around us. But salt was also used for seasoning. Salt is an essential element in human and animal diets, and throughout history, it has been used for seasoning foods. Jesus could have been saying that his followers provide a God-enhanced kingdom seasoning to our world. Salt was uh, also sometimes used in small quantities as fertilizer, believe it or not, when applied to certain types of soil. It was also used in small quantities to keep manure from fermenting. This leads some scholars to believe that Jesus was suggesting that his followers enhance the growth of God's work in the world, just as fertilizer enhances the growth of seeds in the ground. Well, there's one constant in all of these uses for salt. In each case, salt permeates and alters what it touches. Let me say that again. Salt permeates and alters what it touches. Because salt had various uses in the ancient world, many scholars believe that Jesus is not pointing to one specific application, but is using the metaphor in a broad, inclusive sense to refer to vital necessity for everyday life. Pliny the Elder in the first century AD commented, there is nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. Well, taken in this way, the metaphor indicates that Jesus' disciples are vitally important for the welfare of the world. In other words, Jesus' followers experience a transformation in their lives as they come into contact with the kingdom of heaven. And because of this transformation, Christ's followers are now necessary as God's means of influencing the world for good. Well, Jesus goes on to say, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? The phrase, if the salt should lose its taste, literally speaks of salt becoming dumb, foolish, or defiled. Now, technically speaking, did you know this? Salt can't lose its flavor. Salt is a stable compound, and because of that, it can't lose its saltiness. So what was Jesus alluding to, and what did he mean when he talked about the salt losing its flavor? Well, he could have been alluding to rock formations that contained deposits of sodium chloride. Meat and fish were packed in these rocks to preserve them. And after a period of time, the salt leached out of the rocks. And the rocks weren't good for anything, and they were tossed out. 
Jesus could have been saying, as his followers, we are either a preservative or a worthless rock. Some scholars believe Jesus was referring to salt that was collected from the Dead Sea by evaporation. This salt included crystals of another mineral, gypsum. This impure mixture could easily be mistaken for salt, but it was unusable for either preservation or seasoning, and because of this, it was really worthless. If Jesus is referring here to impure salt, then he's saying that impure lives make his disciples useless as preserving and seasoning agents in the world. Well, yet another explanation of Jesus' words is tied to a known Jewish proverbial saying on impossibilities. When an inquirer asked a first century rabbi a trick question, the rabbi replied, can salt lose its flavor? Can a mule bear young? Well, everyone in that society knew that mules are sterile, unable to produce offspring. So the obvious answer to both questions is no. If Jesus was referring to this proverbial saying, he was indicating that it's impossible for true disciples to lose what has made them disciples because they've been changed, become changed persons. They've been made new by the life of the kingdom of heaven. However, he's also reminding his disciples that the evidence of the transformation they've undergone is in how they live their lives. Tasteless salt lacks value, and so does a professed disciple who lacks genuine commitment. A disciple who rejects the kingdom values exemplified in the Beatitudes is like tasteless salt, worthless. In fact, Jesus stresses that not only is tasteless salt of no value, it will be discarded. He says, it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. Well, Jesus neither affirms or denies anything about eternal security here. He's describing the world's response to apathetic, lifeless disciples. If we fail to engage our culture with the kingdom life we've received, if we fail to serve as agents of change and redemption, the world will ignore and reject us as irrelevant. They won't even stop to listen. Jesus uses the metaphor of salt to describe the disciples, but he goes on to describe them with a second metaphor, light. He says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. Jesus is likely alluding here to Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6 where God speaks of his servant, the Messiah, as a light to the nations. In John 8.12 and 9.5, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. But Jesus isn't the only one who brings light to the world. Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6 also speak of Israel as bringing light to the world. Paul says that you and I, as Christ followers, have spiritually become Israel through our faith in Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls his disciples, including you and me, the light of the world. So he says of himself, I am the light of the world. But then he says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. As his representatives, you and I are called to shine 
for all to see. But this has got to happen in more than just a theoretical sense. Jesus says, a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men. Jesus said that light is meant to be seen. Just like a city on a hill can be seen by all and dispels the darkness of the night around it, just like a lamp is not covered by a bowl, but placed on a stand inside a house, so we as lights are meant to dispel spiritual darkness in the lives of others as they taste and see kingdom life inside and through us. Jesus also says, Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Well, you might be thinking, didn't Jesus say, Kent, when you do good works, not to let your um, right hand know what your left hand is doing? To pray in private, to fast in private, to give alms in private. Well, yes, he did. But the difference here is motivation. Jesus said to avoid spiritual acts for the sake of bringing attention to yourself. Here in this passage, he said, let your good works be seen so that others will glorify God. God wants other people to see what he's like, to see kingdom life. When others see a true picture of God in us, God is glorified. When people see a true picture of God, they see his love, goodness, mercy, compassion, faithfulness, power, all that he is is revealed to them. When they see who He is and what He's done for them, their natural response is to glorify God. If you and I allow the qualities of kingdom life described in the Beatitudes to be seen in and through our lives, qualities like humility, spiritual brokenness, gentleness, justice, mercy, single-minded devotion, pursuing peace, and joyfully enduring persecution for Christ, then we are like salt that seasons and preserves food, and like a city on a hill, illuminating the darkness of the night. Others will glorify God. Their lives will be changed as they witness kingdom life and choose to submit to the King themselves. If our lives don't demonstrate kingdom life, we are like tasteless salt or a hidden light. Useless. Well, let's make a few quick observations about what we've read and what we've heard. The images, the metaphors of salt and light speak first of not what one does, but of what one is. Jesus refers here to more than good deeds. He refers to our identity and character. We can only embrace God's kingship as a gift. We become a kingdom citizen by grace. We can't earn that status. If your life is saltless and void of light today, it could be because you've never become salt. You're transformed into salt and filled with light 
When you embrace kingdom rule, when you give Jesus control of your life and submit your will to his. You may have come to church for years. You might even have been baptized. But if you haven't given control of your life to the king, or if you've taken back that control, you won't season your world or shine into the darkness. Jesus invites you this morning to release control of your life to Him and to become salt and light. Others here today are like the first century rocks used for preserving meat and fish that contain salt along with other minerals. The salt has leached out and it's not being replenished because you're not in right relationship with God. You're not dealing with sin that God has pointed out to you. Perhaps it's pride, anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, jealousy, or an addiction like overworking, ouch, overeating, ouch to me again, shopping, or pornography. No matter your situation, God can set you free. He can make you salty again and relight your lamp. What must you do? Be honest with yourself and God. Admit your sin. Choose to turn from it and ask God for His help. He wants to help you. He wants to make you salty again and relight your light. While these metaphors of salt and light start with who we are, They don't stop there. They also describe what we do. Salt that doesn't mix with food and light that doesn't shine into the darkness are both useless. This is a bowl of uh, sunflower seeds, just pure sunflower seeds that have been been shelled. Um, Lauren, I'm going to ask you to come up and do something for me. I want you to come, come on up here. Just stand, stand right here. I want you to t- take, take these. And uh, do you like sunflower seeds? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. And you're not allergic to them or no. anything? Okay. That's good. All right. Um, go ahead and taste those. You notice anything about them? They taste like sunflower seeds. Yeah. Kind of plain. Just you're getting the sunflower seeds. But in this bowl over here, there's, there's sunflower seeds, but these sunflower seeds have been seasoned with something. I'm going to let you taste those, see if you can tell what it is. <laughs> it's not poison, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, let's do something. You're welcome. (laughs) We definitely got enough of the seasoning in those where the seasoning is actually mixed with the sunflower seeds. The first ones were plain, but the second ones, the salt actually got into 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 the sunflower seeds. 
Thank you very much. Let's give him a hand. (laughs) Ushers, I'm going to ask you to do something. I ask you to turn off the lights if you would. Mike, could you do that for us? And uh, be a few lights up in the sound booth there that we'll need to turn off as well. If somebody can uh, grab those. Uh, I'm not sure if Jonas, he might not know where they are. Somebody else could help. I think they're hidden. Yeah. How silly would it be to have salt but never mix it with our food? Well, how silly would it be to have a lamp that lights the room and to put a bowl over it? The light can't do what it was meant to do. It can't dispel the darkness. It can't change the darkness into light. Lights were never meant to have something over them they were meant to be able to shine where they, could, they, where, where, where they could be seen. Thank you, ushers. You can turn those lights back on if you would. Appreciate that. Well, many of us here are like the salt that doesn't mix with the food and the light that remains hidden. Many Christ followers have few, if any, meaningful relationships with non-believers. We spend our time keeping to ourselves in front of the computer on our phone, and hanging out at church a lot. We must choose to put ourselves in close proximity to non-believers. If we were going to be salt that seasons and light that penetrates darkness, how do we do that? We do it by cultivating friendships with non-believers. Well, how do we do that? We invest time and energy to mix with them as individuals, and collectively as a church family. Individually, we do things like invite a coworker or fellow student for lunch. Not to witness to them yet, just to get to know them better, to show them we're interested in them, that we care. We invite a neighbor over for coffee and dessert for, or for a summer barbecue. Not to witness to them just yet, but just to get to know them better, to show them that we're interested in them, to show them that we care. We invite someone from our social contacts or from our school to go to a Stamps football game, a concert, or a movie with us. God might open an opportunity for spiritual conversation like he did for Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. But the point is, if Jesus hadn't taken time to engage the woman in conversation, he wouldn't have been afforded an opportunity to be salt and light to her. It's only to the degree that you and I enter into friendship and meaningful relationship with others that we will find opportunities to be salt and light to them. I want to I I give you a challenge for this week. I want to challenge you this week to reach out and have a meaningful conversation with someone at your work or at your school someone in your uh, geographical world and someone in your social world. So that means a coworker or a fellow student, a neighbor, or an acquaintance from one of your social connections. You could initiate one of the activities that I've already mentioned, or you could try something else. Be, be creative. But engage in conversation to begin or to strengthen a relationship. Tell God that as salt, you want to mix with some food and quit. Hiding your light. 
he'll open an opportunity. Next week, we're actually going to take a few minutes in the service to hear some short, some short, oh, that's hard for this morning, my tongue tied, to hear some short God stories about what happened this week. We're going to have a short testimony time. I'm going to respond to the challenge myself, so I invite you to join me and to watch God at work. This is where being a disciple becomes what Jesus meant for it to be, an adventure. Well, we've been talking about engaging others individually, but we must also choose to engage others collectively as the church through initiatives and events like, you guessed it, the Stampede Barbecue and Vacation Bible School. Through events like these, God is bringing some people to us and inviting us to be salt and light right here at 20 Hawkwood Drive. To make a difference, we have to choose to show up, to serve, and to engage. As salt, we have to choose to mix with the food, and as light, we must choose not to cover our lamp. Have you signed up to help yet with the, for the, with the barbecue and VBS? As you and I do, we're choosing to be salt that actually seasons our world and light that actually shines into the darkness. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill. Let your light shine so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Would you pray with me? Let's just pause for a moment and in the silence, let's listen to the Spirit of God as He brings home Jesus' words to us personally and shows us what He is saying to us about what we've, what we've heard this morning. Let's do that right now.